Last week, while my family and I were away, Pastor Steve brought us a message from John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. He titled his message, True Liberation. Notice he didn't call it true liberty. I thought, that was, I thought it was neat that he chose the word liberation. I, I thought about that quite a bit. He pointed out how Jesus stopped, stooped, and saved. He stopped, he stooped, and he saved. Whereas the Pharisees were ready to capture, condemn, and kill. And there, Pastor Steve showed us the stark contrast between religious systems which capture, condemn, and kill, as opposed to the life of Jesus Christ, because he stops, he stoops, and he saves. Two weeks ago, we considered the sixth plague that God brought upon Egypt, taken from Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. In these few short verses, we saw how God uses the ashes taken from a kiln to inflict boils and open sores on the Egyptians, while at the same time sparing his people, the Hebrews. That which Pharaoh and the Egyptians used as an instrument of slavery and oppression was turned against them in God's perfect and just judgment. We also took a few examples from the miracles of Jesus to see how he used different methods to teach men profound truths uh, in the act of restoring sight to the blind. We read three separate stories of how Jesus restored sight to the blind in three very different ways. But even in judgment, God, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened against God's command to let his people go. Pharaoh had rebelled against God so often, and his heart was so saturated in pride that he would not and even could not repent of the path that he, is, that he had chosen. But God foresaw it all and warned his servant Moses that this would happen and that it would all bring glory to God and complete the deliverance for his people. So this morning, we are going to look at the seventh plague, which is hail, and we are going to take our passage from Exodus chapter 9, and we are going to read verses 13 through 35. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me, for at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have left in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die." 
He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the, and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our request simply this morning is that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word. Without your spirit, we are incapable of understanding what you have for us. But by your spirit, you give us the mind of Christ. And for this, we are thankful. We pray that it would be transformative in our lives moving forward. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The seventh plague begins the third and final series of plagues that God would bring against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And there is a noticeable increase in the intensity and severity of God's judgments against those that oppressed his people and disobeyed his commands. While the other eight plagues, setting aside the tenth, which is unique, average about ten verses each to describe, <clears throat> Moses' description of the seventh plague is 23 verses long. It is loaded with details each one of which deserves its own sermon. This morning, however, we will take a broader view of the seventh plague and just touch on some of the high points in the text. In fact, even though we have just read the entire account of plague number seven, we are going to take two weeks to cover all these verses. 
Today, we will try to make it to the end of verse 26, and then we will leave verses 27 through 35 for next week. And all the kids said, Amen. And Mike said, Amen, too. So we'll begin brief look at verses 13 through 21, which is the warning that God gives to Pharaoh. Just as God sent Moses to meet Pharaoh at the Nile to initiate the first and second sets of three plagues. Remember we talked about plagues one, two, and three was the first set. Plagues four, five, and six were, were the second set. And plagues seven, eight, and nine were the third set with the ten be, tenth being unique. Each time he sets off a new set of three plagues, he sends Moses to meet Pharaoh at the Nile. So he does it again today. I don't know about you, but if I were Pharaoh and I saw Moses approaching me at the Nile for this the third time, I would be shaking in my boots or my sandals, considering what had happened the first two times. God, in his grace, when he first approaches men, draws them. So for their own sakes, they may be willing to submit. But afterwards, when they will not be drawn, then, for the sake of others, they must be driven. God uses the word at this time in verse 14 to point out a rapid and continuous succession of judgments which are about to take place. The previous plagues, six of them, appear to have been spread over a considerable time, maybe as much as a full year. But these final three plagues seem to strike with no break between them. They're just blow after blow. And what is the target of these remaining plagues? Well, God tells us also in verse 14 that he will send all his plagues to Pharaoh's very heart. God is telling Pharaoh two important things in this announcement. One, God is going to complete his judgments at this point because he uses the word all in this verse. And two, the final plagues are going to strike Pharaoh's heart. They are going to impact his whole person, including his emotions. Today's plague of hail, as we will find out later, strikes fear into Pharaoh's heart in a way that no other plague has managed to do. In verse 15, which is beautifully translated in the New King James, God is letting Pharaoh know what he might have done if he would have so chosen. Pharaoh simply would not have survived, and Egypt would have ceased to be a nation had God wiped out Egypt and the Egyptians Moses simply could have proclaimed himself Pharaoh, freed his people, and taken over the rich land of the Nile. But God wanted them out of Egypt. He had promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, and he would fulfill his promise in bringing his people out of Egypt, never to return. The importance of this truth for us today cannot be overstated. But, God says in verse 16, he has preserved Pharaoh all the way through the other six plagues. 
that the power of God might be displayed and that the name of Jehovah may be declared in all the earth. Forty years later, the people of Jericho still trembled when they remembered what the Lord God had done to Egypt. And it still serves to comfort God's people today, 3,500 years later. Verses 15 and 16 of our text in chapter 9 are so important. The Apostle Paul quotes them in chapter 9 of the book of Romans. And I think we must read that passage if we are going to understand their importance today. So let's read together Romans chapter 9 and verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills, he hardens. We should really keep reading this passage right through to verse 29 because that's where Paul wraps up this part of his thought and I encourage you to do that. But there is just so much to consider this morning. I think we would just run out of time if we kept going. But don't take my word for it. Read the scriptures for yourself. Many Bible scholars consider Romans chapter 9 through 11 to be a sort of parenthesis within the entire letter. But I'm not sure if this doesn't do a disservice to the importance of what Paul is saying in those three chapters. In fact, Those three chapters may very well be the capstone of the book, but that's a discussion for another time. Many Calvinists or Reformed theologian, and those of you that know me know that I'm not a Calvinist, they take these couple of verses from Exodus chapter 9 that we read, 15 and 16, and and they take Paul's explanation of them in Romans as evidence that God caused Pharaoh to be born prideful and willful and then raised him to his position as king, hardening his heart, judging him and condemning him that God might show forth his power in all the earth. Pharaoh, from the beginning, was simply a hopeless vessel for wrath from the moment he was conceived. But this doesn't seem to be an accurate representation of the God that I read about in the rest of the scriptures or the God perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Other clear passages declare, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what about this verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever 
believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John Calvin himself, who seems to be, to me, less of a Calvinist than some modern Calvinists, said of this passage in Exodus this, For it was desirable as an example that it should be known openly how madly those who are cast into a reprobate state of feeling and who are possessed by a spirit of willfulness rush upon their own destruction. Sounds a lot like Calvin is crediting Pharaoh's destruction to his own free will choice to rebel against the Lord. For this cause I raised you up, God says. This is a most dreadful message. Moses is here ordered to deliver to Pharaoh. He must tell him that he is marked for ruin. God so ordered history that Moses should have a man of such fierce and stubborn spirit to deal with, to make it a most memorable illustration of the power God has to bring down the proudest of his enemies. Also consider that the Hebrew word in verse 16 rendered raised up never signifies bringing a person into being, but it means preserving, supporting, establishing, or it is most often translated making stand. God caused Pharaoh to stand through everything that had happened because God wasn't finished displaying his power yet. The meaning, therefore, of this passage is not that God brought Pharaoh into being for this time or made him rebellious that he might be an example of his severity and vengeance. Instead, though Pharaoh had long deserved to be destroyed, yet God had spared him and had long uh, and had preserved him in his position for a considerable time to show his power by the signs and wonders which he displayed in the land of Egypt. And in the end, God delivered his people in spite of all the opposition of Pharaoh with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. The, this king the Lord took when he was at the height of his power. Nobody in the world was more powerful than Pharaoh. He kept him alive. He endured his defiance. He preserved a balance in his mind so that he should not go insane as so many other tyrants do. He gave him a season of health. He guarded against any insurrection in his realm. He patiently bore his rebellion. Then, as the conflict grew more heated, instead of cutting him off in the midst of his daring pride, God kept pressing him, all to do him good, if he would only accept and allow good to come. The purpose seems to have been to draw this one man, Pharaoh, out and to exhaust his tremendous powers and capabilities right to their very limit. In this way, the Hebrews could understand, as you and I can, because we have the text, that no king, not even at the highest conception of force and tyranny, 
was or ever could be a match for El Shaddai, the Almighty, the great Jehovah, who was their king and their God. And still, God opens a way of escape. In verses 19 through 21 of today's text, Moses shows that there were some, even in Pharaoh's court, who were taught by experience as not altogether to ignore his warnings. There were those who were persuaded to some degree or another that Moses was the servant of God and a prophet, as well as the herald of divine judgment. Moses, so far, had announced seven plagues, and every single one of them occurred just as he had spoken. To ignore the eighth would be the pinnacle of folly, especially with the cost being so high. Some of Pharaoh's servants were persuaded to follow Moses' instructions due to their immediate and momentary terror. So we learn from this passage that fear is able to make even the unbeliever anxious. And he will either belittle or run from the judgment of God. Still, Moses writes in today's text that their fear profited them because they did not experience the same disaster as those who would not heed God's warning. I think we are shown here that those who obstinately refuse to obey God's commands and direction for establishing a good and just society are, are more grievously and heavily afflicted. But those that obey the principles of God, even though they do not acknowledge his authority or sometimes even his existence, are unwittingly recipients of his goodness by his general grace. This reminds me of the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Then Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. The kingdom of God, for our purposes this morning, can be considered a society, however great or small, established on the principles taught by Christ. We might call it Christendom, which doesn't mean every individual person is a Christian. It means that somehow the society is just built on Christian principles. I would love to bring up Canada as an example, but I'm not going to do that for now. The United States, for example, is not made exclusively or even perhaps mostly of Christian believers, but American society is rooted in principles extracted from the word of God and the life of Christ. Therefore, it has, as a result, flourished like no other nation before or since. Even the birds of the air, the Bible's symbol for those opposed to the work of Christ, benefit from the mere application of the principles of heaven at work on earth. It is not an eternal benefit, however, so we must be diligent in not allowing the benefits of God's grace 
to be a substitute for the presence of Christ in the hearts of those that are his through faith. It is a temporary benefit. So let's look at the final five verses we're going to look at today, 22 through 26. We'll talk about this miraculous storm. This is no ordinary storm. Egypt rarely gets rain, let alone hail. On the very rare occasion that hail does fall in Egypt, it is small, harmless, and brief due to Egypt's warm climate. The coming storm was like nothing Pharaoh or the Egyptians had ever seen or experienced before. There is something about a good old-fashioned thunderstorm, isn't there? Some children, seeing the lightning flash and hearing the thunder crash, are afraid. They might hide under the blankets or seek comfort from a parent. Those of you that have raised little children or been around little children, sometimes that thunder comes and the windows and the walls shake and children look for a safe place to be. Others, perhaps a bit older, are filled with wonder or even a sense of worship while watching a good thunderclapper. There is something so powerful in the roar of thunder, the flash of lightning, and the pelting rain when you know the one who controls it all. But if you were for a moment to think that the one directing the storm opposed you and was bringing justice to you, you might, like the young child we mentioned earlier, hide under the blankets. And this is where we find Pharaoh, as it were, hiding under a blanket of absolute terror at what was taking place in the skies over Egypt. This was, for him, the most frightening plague thus far. The Egyptians themselves must have believed that the wrath of God was being poured out from heaven in all its severity. When the water is struck, you move elsewhere and you dig for other water. When the land is struck, you know that you can wait out the worst of it or travel to another parcel of land and get things going again. But when God's power is unleashed from the heavens, where do you go? Where do you go to hide from his face? And like I said before, this is no ordinary storm. The Bible describes heavy hail like Egypt had never seen since its founding. The hail was so severe that any man or beast caught outside would not survive the onslaught. And there was lightning amongst the hail, unlike any lightning the Egyptians had ever experienced. And of course, thunder accompanied the lightning like the very voice of God pronouncing judgment against them. Just very briefly as an aside, the scripture doesn't use the word lightning. It says flashes of fire. Um, and that's not because Moses didn't have a word for lightning. Moses later on uses a different word and talks about lightning. What he's talking about here is, is enough unlike lightning. He calls it fire folding in on itself. 
to the ground. This is something more incredible than just strikes of lightning here and there. This is something Moses had to use a different word for. And so uh, it's interesting because the heavier, the heavier the static electricity in the air during a hailstorm, we've had hailstorms in this area, if you have lots of lightning and static electricity that sort of makes your hair stand on end, that causes hailstones to get bigger and bigger and bigger as the static electricity causes them to accumulate moisture and fall to the ground. And this seems to be the method God used to produce these deadly hailstones. The air was so full of fire that these hailstones grew and grew and grew to the point where you couldn't be outside or you would die under the weight of the hailstones. And the whole land of Egypt is struck. The Bible describes everything that the hail destroyed. Every man and every beast out in the field was destroyed. Every plant of the field was destroyed. Every tree of the field was destroyed. The devastation was unparalleled. Even in this, we see the mercy of God. Firstly, God gave a warning that he would spare all men and animals that would heed Moses' warning and seek the safety of a house or a barn. And there were even those in Pharaoh's household that listened. Secondly, as we will discuss further next week, only half of the Egyptian crops were destroyed due to the timing of the judgment brought upon Egypt. Thirdly, the Bible specifically describes the trees that are struck as the trees of the field, which were smaller shrubs and bushes that would have had their stems and branches broken off. The larger trees, particularly the fir trees, very likely would have survived the ravages of this storm. Uh, not the fir, the fig. Egypt could still recover if Pharaoh would yet repent. God's judgment is still being measured against Egypt so that some may yet turn to the God of the Hebrews. He doesn't utterly wipe them out. He offers them an opportunity to repent. So in conclusion, what can you and I take from this scripture into the week ahead? Several things, I think. I'll list three. One, when God's judgment first falls, its primary purpose is redemptive. This is not to say that all the difficulties you will experience in your life are God's judgments. Some difficulties are simply a result of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. But there are times when God does chastise, and when he does, the purpose is to restore us to a right relationship with him and remind us that holy living is the pathway to abundant life. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. 
For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you godly sorrow and the fruits of it. The second thing I think we can learn from this passage is that God's sovereignty is not limited by man's rebellion. God's sovereign purposes in this world will be accomplished, even if all the greatest powers of men try to oppose him. They are nothing in the presence of God's almighty power. So as Christians, we must, keyword, choose to live in the peace and joy of Christ's ultimate victory. And it is a choice. And the third thing and final thing I think we can take away from today's passage, God gives us a way to escape his wrath. We must hear and obey his words, and his words to us today are to escape the wrath to come by placing our faith in Jesus Christ because his work on the cross cleanses us from all sin. He alone is able to present us before God cleansed and without wrinkle or any other blemish, prepared for an eternity of peace and blessing in heaven, beginning even today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your heart of mercy, your heart of grace. For without it, every person in this room is condemned already. And yet, you did not leave us condemned, but you sent your Son. You sent your Son that he might spread his wings over us when the time, and fire, when the time of fire and hail would come and consume us completely. You chose to spare those that trust in Christ, not because we earned it, but because you chose us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the love that you poured out on that cross, on Jesus Christ, that he took all that we deserved and paid the penalty that we might be set free in him. I pray that no person would leave this room this morning without being moved by the Spirit of God to reflect on the love and the mercy and the grace of God as displayed perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go forward into the week ahead, would you, by your grace, guide and direct us? Many of us are facing family difficulties or business trials or financial difficulties and emotional pain. The list can go on and on and on. And we simply have not got the mental resources to deal with it all. But we have Christ. We have the wisdom of God, and you have promised that you would give it to us if we would simply ask. Help us to be faithful. Help us to live worthy of the name Christian in the days and weeks to come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.